Bibles, please turn in them with me to Luke chapter 10. And as you heard read earlier, we will be looking at verses 1 through 12. One of my favorite activities in the life of First Baptist Church is D-Now Weekend. Um, We had that at the end of April. You may remember the youth. I think they were all wearing the same shirt and all seated in the balcony if perhaps you saw a big massive of youth age people that Sunday. But uh, what the D-Now weekend is, is a time of, uh, of retreat and of fellowship, but also a time of focus on the external journey of gospel advance. Um, year over year, they've used the D-Now weekend to highlight the importance of evangelism and mission. And so a huge part of that weekend on the Saturday, uh, which is also a nice break for all the host homes that host all of those youth on the, on the evening prior and the evening after. Um, on that Saturday, all the youth gather here, and then we usually have an outreach event where we send them out into the community to engage the community in some way. And that's meant, of course, to further some of our own intentions here as we're trying to do ministry in our community. But it's also meant to be a training opportunity for them to be built up in their own evangelistic zeal. And this past uh, D-Now, we had the opportunity to go out into several apartment communities that we had identified that specifically had a high number of internationals living there, but we didn't know specifically what kinds of internationals, where, where they were from or, or what their makeup was, what languages they spoke. And so we sent out the youth ahead of us to go and to invite people using a card to church and to some of our international activities but then also to report back to help us develop our international strategy for this summer and beyond. And so as we were going out into the communities, one event or one moment really stands out in my mind. I had the joy of joining in with one of the teams as they were walking around this one community that as I was walking with them, we discovered very quickly there were a lot of Spanish speakers there. Now, sadly, I don't speak a lick of Spanish. So I was really just trusting the Lord and hoping that my presence with the youth would maybe be an encouragement to them. You know, I'm I'm supposed to be going out with them and setting an example. So I thought, all right, Lord, well, I don't speak the language, but I want to be a good example. And so we're going out with them, and we come up to one door, and it's my turn to take the card and to do my prescripted line, right? So I I walk up to the door. The youth are behind me. I knock on it. And the door is opened by this older woman. And I start my line that we trained the youth to give. I said, hey, we're with First Baptist Church and we're here to tell the community about. And then she just lifted up her hand, pointed to her ear, and she said the dreaded phrase that I knew would probably come up. No hablo ingles. Now, I don't know Spanish, but I know enough to know what that means. And in that moment, my heart kind of sank. I was looking forward to it. Not a lot of people were opening up the door. And so I, in that moment, I just thought to myself, all right, Lord, help me to not show discouragement. Help me just be faithful. I was just going to kind of hand her the card and then move on. But in that moment, before I could even reach my hand out with the card, one of the youth puts his hand on my arm. And he said, Mr. Chase, I can speak some Spanish. And I was like, okay. And he, without missing a beat, just jumps right in front of me, and he starts engaging this woman at the door with Spanish, walking through our invite card and then communicating to her that we would pray for her. And in that moment, I was just really struck by his boldness and his faithfulness. And be encouraged that that was the testimony of many Many of our youth who went out that day, their boldness to knock on the door and engage. But as I was reflecting on it more, I saw his mother later in the week on Wednesday. She was here in the Welcome Center, and I thought, I really want to share what happened just as an encouragement to her. And so I walked up and I said, hey, I had the joy of spending time with your son at the outreach on Saturday, and and I want to tell you a story that happened then. She said, okay. And I said, now I want to be frank, though. There's one thing that really encouraged me about your son, and then there was one thing that discouraged me. I could see her face kind of puzzled a little bit. I said, let me first start with the encouragement. I said, you know, 
When I went up there to the door just to see him with his boldness, I was so encouraged that without missing a beat, he just faithfully did that. I mean, he could have just shirked aside. He could have just said, you know what, let Chase handle the card, we'll move on, but he didn't. He took it upon himself to be bold after I recounted the story that I just recounted to you. And I could tell her face was kind of puzzling a little bit. Well, what on earth was so discouraging? I said, well, now you're probably thinking. Let me get to the discouraging aspect. While I was encouraged by his boldness, I was incredibly discouraged that he called me Mr. Chase. <laughs> I tell you what, I just turned 34 this past week, and I know I should be getting used to it, but it's, it still stings a little bit every time they do it. But No, but actually, all joking aside, it, it wasn't actually that that discouraged me. And in fact, it wasn't even really a discouragement. It was more of a conviction. You see, if I'm going to be honest with you, when we were going out to that activity, I myself was nervous about what we were about to do. I was supposed to be the one leading the team. In fact, I was part of the team that helped plan the outreach, and yet I myself, even as I went up to the door, had a little bit of trepidation in my heart. And if you're like me, you probably have a little bit of trepidation when it comes to the task of sharing the gospel, the task of being an evangelist to the community. And as I reflected on the reason for that, I think it has to do with a couple of things. One, I think it has to do with a confusion over the nature of the mission. You see, whenever we don't really know what we're supposed to do, whenever our expectations are unclear, that's a great opportunity for fear to come in. One of the things we did with the youth is we did train them before we sent them out, and that helped alleviate a lot of the trepidation, but not all of it. And so I think it stems from that. Secondly, there's other fears that I think may be linked to a sense of inadequacy that we feel in our hearts. We think to ourselves, I can't do that. That's for the bold guy over there who makes a regular pattern of it. This evangelism thing, it's not for me. It's for a special class in the church that has that unique gifting. And I'm not minimizing there are some people that have that gifting. But I think that that gets at a reality that we misunderstand the task, and who Jesus is calling to be a part of it. And so how can we be prepared as we think about taking the gospel to our community? Well, by God's grace, similar to how we trained the youth, Jesus provides some instructions to his disciples before they're sent out on a similar journey. As we come to Luke 10, we're going to see that the training that Jesus gives does equip them with some logistics for that specific occasion. But I think what we're actually going to see as we look through the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples is not merely a set of tasks to be copied, but rather an attitude and a role to be stepped up into and fulfilled. What we're going to see is that a life of faithfulness in evangelism and mission flows from embracing our identity as heralds of the king. So how do we become these bold heralds for the king? We'll take a look at verse 1. We're going to see firstly that Jesus makes heralds by giving them an urgent commission. Verse 1 in chapter 10 says, after this, the Lord appointed 72. Let's pause right there. After this, you know, I, I understand we've been in the Gospel of Mark. We're parachuting into Luke. Helpful to have a little bit of the context. Well, if you look back up at chapter 9, verse 51, you'll see that there's a major turn that's happened in the Gospel of Luke thematically. It says, when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's roughly a year left in Jesus' ministry. He's been doing ministry throughout the uh, countryside. And now it comes to the moment, though, where Jesus is shifting his aim, his focus to Jerusalem. And in his mind, very much, very clear, is what's about to happen in Jerusalem, namely his arrest and then his being taken up. And that's an allusion to his crucifixion and then his eventual ascension as well. And so Jesus here has a single-minded devotion as he's turning his attention now to Jerusalem. But the ministry is not over. While he turns his attention, there's still a lot of teaching and a lot of missional work that's left to be done. Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62, the verses that come right before this morning's verses, underscore this sense of urgency and this sense of reality of the mission setting in when Jesus equips his disciples with some pretty 
difficult teaching as it relates to the cost of discipleship. And so the cost of discipleship, the impending suffering, these are the themes that sort of overshadow everything that happens from Luke until the end of the story. And so with Jerusalem on his heart and mind, Jesus turns to look at the greater crowd of disciples that have been following him. He's already had the 12, and he's actually already called them and even given them a similar mission previously in this book. But now Jesus turns his attention to the broader crowd, and he does something very powerful. You see, this crowd, they're a bunch of no names. We don't know anything about this larger group, and we don't know anything about the 72. It's likely that they were people that were perhaps outcasts themselves, Maybe some Jews and maybe some Gentiles who heard about the message as Jesus was doing his itinerant ministry and came to faith. So you're looking at a group of regular people, many of whom maybe had besetting weaknesses themselves. And so Jesus looks to this crowd and instead of uh, highlighting the 12 and sending them out again, this unique group, instead it says that Jesus looks at these 72 and he appoints them. He appoints them. And this is powerful because Jesus here is extending the mission to the greater crowd in the same way that he appointed the original 12. He actually uses the word apostello from where we get the name of the office apostle. But these are not, step, these are not individuals who are stepping into the office, but they are facilitating the same mission. And what is this mission? It's the very mission that Jesus himself was busy about. If you look back at Luke 4.43, you don't have to flip there, but I'll read it for you. Jesus himself said as he was going through the town that he must preach the message of the kingdom of God to all the towns, for he was sent for this purpose. And so in order to affect this preaching ministry, Jesus himself is doing it, but then he's extending it to these disciples. And he gives them this role from where I get the, the title of this sermon. He gives them this role of being sent out ahead of him to do some preparatory work in all the places that he himself was about to go. The king, Jesus, appoints these 72 to be his heralds. Now, what is a herald? A herald, simply put, is a messenger of a king. It's somebody who goes out ahead of the king with the king's authority and proclaims a message from the king and then people hear that message and they may respond or they may not, but the message is from the king himself. The herald does not have authority in and of himself or herself. Instead, the herald's authority comes from the king. It's like an envelope that you get in the mail. If there's a seal of someone important on the back, you pay attention to the contents of that envelope because it's been marked with the authority and the office of the king. That's the role that Jesus is appointing these disciples to do. And as just a quick way of application and encouragement to us, this corrects, I think, a common misunderstanding in evangelism that God doesn't want to use you. Be encouraged that a powerful truth here is that Jesus' authority and his kingly mission is not dependent on your strength. It's not dependent on your ability. Instead, it's dependent on his power and his authority. You are merely a messenger of the king. When you serve in this capacity, people look through the herald and they see the king who sent them. So be encouraged this morning. If you feel like this is not a task that I can do, Correct that misunderstanding by realizing nothing special about us is what makes us the herald. Instead, it's the authority of the king and the divine commission given by him. But then there's also a sense of urgency because that reporting method that Jesus sent them out to accomplish also serves to highlight that the king is coming. So he gives the heralds a mission to go out, and they're supposed to have this idea that the king is coming himself, which lends itself a sense of urgency. And the sense of urgency is also developed more, and I'll get to that in a second, but before we get to that sense of urgency developed more, we see as well that Jesus sends them out two by two. So the task we're going to talk about here in a moment, but let's pause and look at this detail as well. You know, this sending out two by two, I think, is intentional in one respect. 
In the Old Testament, the witness of two would be sufficient to verify a truth claim, to to basically testify to the veracity of a claim. And I think that's going on here as well. But I also think Jesus has in mind something very practical. I think Jesus has in his mind that when you go out with a partner or a friend in ministry, it's just better. You get more confidence when you're sent out with a friend. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says this plainly. Two are better than one because they have a good Reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So Jesus sends out these heralds. Immediately we already see him caring for them, giving them strength for the journey, which we're going to elaborate more on in a moment. But then Jesus builds on the urgency of the mission by shifting in Luke 10:2 with this prayer. He says, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Then he gives this command, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That word send out in the original language carries more than just a mere appointing. It actually carries the sense of a compulsion. Jesus says that we need to pray that the Father would compel people from their inward being to go and be busy about this task. And why? It's because the harvest is plentiful. With this, with this prayer request that Jesus gives to the disciples, he's powerfully communicating to them another critical element of what it means to receive this divine commission. A herald of the king not only has a sense of what he's supposed to do as an emissary, but he also has a sense of urgency himself and compassion. Where do I get this from? Well, Jesus uses this harvest analogy to draw attention to the urgency of the task. Especially in the Old Testament, the harvest was always a picture of the coming judgment. The harvest was a a picture for Jesus uh, returning in power and God judging the earth and, and then righting everything by dividing people from those who trust in him and follow after him and into the other camp of those who do not. And Jesus himself uses this analogy when he talks about the coming judgment elsewhere in the Gospels. The harvest is a picture for this coming judgment day. Matthew 13, 30 says, let both grow together until the harvest. Jesus talking there in the parable of the weeds. And he says, at that harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now you may be wondering though, why is Jesus using this kind of end times analogy and then bringing it to bear on this particular missionary enterprise? Is it true that these 72 disciples that are being sent out by Jesus, they're going to be the ones that are affecting the end of the age? In a sense, no, because there's so much more history that has to be accomplished. But in Jesus' mind, in a sense, yes. You see, Jesus is keenly aware of the penalty of sin. As the propitiation for sin himself, remember with his eyes fixed on that day that's coming where he would die on the cross for sin. With that in view, Jesus is fully aware of the cost of not being in relationship forgiven with God. And so I think Jesus, as he looks at the mission that these 72 disciples, these 72 friends that he's sending out, he sees them affecting the reality that is to come, and Judgment Day provides the lens for the urgency of the mission. Jesus knows the cost, and he's communicating that cost and that sense of urgency to his disciples. He plainly makes this connection clear in Matthew 9, 36 through 38. You may remember when he uses this exact phrasing, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Now pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. He immediately before that command in Matthew 9 says that he looks out at the crowds with compassion because they were as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus just looks at the world differently than we do. He looks at the world and he sees the bondage of sin still very much in effect. And he sees judgment day coming and he knows the cost of what it means to be on the outside. 
And Jesus also knows that the plan of God is to send his followers out into the world to effect that salvation. And through this very simple but powerful prayer request, Jesus is communicating that urgency. He looks up and he sees there's so much work left to be done. Pray that the Lord of the harvest, and it's his harvest, it's not our harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest field. As I was thinking about this, I just started to ask the question, do we have this sense of compassion for the loss with an awareness of judgment day on the horizon that compels us to be motivated to take the gospel to them? Jesus sees the urgent need and he says that that should compel us to pray, to compel us to pray. And I think in this prayer, Jesus teaches us at least three things quickly. One is that God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. I mean, look at the nature of the prayer request. Firstly, it implies that our prayers actually do affect the will of God in compelling people to go. God is sovereign over everything, yes, and Jesus knows every sheep that will hear his voice and come in. But powerfully, Jesus takes a moment here to say, and if you want to be a part of that mission, pray. Pray. Secondly, he also communicates very powerfully that he wants us, therefore, to be a part of his unfolding plan. Jesus wants us as his followers to be involved in his mission. So he tells us to pray so that others would be involved and that we ourselves would be involved. And then thirdly, and I think this is probably at the crux of why he asks them to pray, he wants us to depend on his power not our own. If you're anything like me, when you are confronted with a task that requires a lot of faith, you probably are drawn to or perhaps led to start assessing what you can do to affect it. Jesus here says, no, don't do that, disciples. You may be itching to get ready and you may be itching to hear the commands that follow, But before you go, you have to be prepared in a way that only prayer can prepare you. You need to learn my dependence, and you need to go in that dependence. And prayer like this, brothers and sisters, requires great faith, doesn't it? Prayer like this that's motivated for compassion for the lost and and, and, and then compels people to go, it requires faith that Jesus is actually doing what he said he's doing. It requires faith that there is a day that's coming that will have judgment on the horizon, that people will be separated as sheep and as goats, and that there is an eternity that awaits every single soul we interact with. It requires faith, doesn't it, that those things are true. And as we pray, Jesus builds, I think, that faith in us. God doesn't need help unfolding his plan But what prayer does is it brings us into the will of God and shapes our hearts and shapes our compassion and shapes our sense of urgency as we follow after him. As Charles Spurgeon said, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. So let's not rush into obedience without a heart of prayer. And that prayerful dependence, I think Jesus elaborates even more on through the series of instructions that he's about to give. So now we turn our attention to some of the instructions in verses three through eight, where Jesus not only wants his followers to have a sense of this urgent commission and to trust him through prayer, these instructions that he's about to give, they do apply to this particular missions trip, if you want to use that word. But I think what he uses these instructions to do is to impress into their hearts even greater a sense of dependence on what it means to fulfill the mission. So they're to obey with a constant dependence. What do we mean by this? We'll take a look at Luke chapter 10, verse 3. After praying, he powerfully says, Now go your way. Behold, I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now this is a powerful analogy. Lambs were the prey of wolves. And it's not as if lambs had some sort of strength in and of themselves that they could defend themselves if they just muster up enough strength. Lambs were utterly helpless in the face of this adversary. 
So what is Jesus getting at when he says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves? I thought Jesus was the good shepherd. Why would a good shepherd send out lambs in the midst of wolves? Well, firstly, I think Jesus here is not sugarcoating the reality of the mission. From the perspective of the 72 and from our perspective as well, he's highlighting for us from the very beginning that this mission will be dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Well, remember, who is the God of this age? It's Satan. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2. He's called the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. Jesus is making clear for us that as we go, we are emissaries of a good king, but we're marching into enemy territory. And it's not territory that the enemy is going to want to give up lightly. Ephesians 6 makes this plain whenever Paul writes that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers over this present darkness. What is he referring to? He's referring to the spiritual adversaries that are behind the persecution that Christians face as they go. So why this analogy is lambs in the midst of wolves? Well, I think with the reality in mind, he is equipping them, yes. But I also think he wants them to depend on him for protection. You remember Peter, whenever Jesus was being arrested, what was his first inclination? He wanted to pull out the sword and defend Jesus, right? I think that sometimes can be our tendency. We want to say as we go out on mission, all right, Lord, I'm going to win this kingdom for you by my strength. Jesus is saying the kingdom doesn't advance that way. It doesn't advance through our taking up arms and defending ourselves. No, in fact, it advances through sacrifice and through suffering. And the only way that you're going to be successful is if you're depending on him for protection. This reminds me in Acts 18 when Paul was feeling some some anxiety about going into the city of Corinth. This man was beaten everywhere he went, faced persecution all the day long. But God comes to him in a vision and says, do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Why does Paul need that encouragement? Because he needs to be reminded that the power that goes behind him is the king's power. And the king that is powerful enough to save you is powerful enough to protect you as you go. So depend on the king's protection. And just as a quick application, this also teaches us very plainly that just because the task is hard sometimes doesn't mean it's not the Lord's will. In fact, one of the markers of the mission of these 72 appears to be that it's going to be hard and that they're going to experience difficulty. But in the face of that persecution, that difficulty, we can know that God will protect us. It was faith building for them. As they go, Jesus wasn't going to be physically with them. They needed to trust in his power to protect. But it wasn't just depending on the king's protection. They also needed to depend on the king's provision. Take a look at Luke 10, 4. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Now, if you're anything like me, I'm looking at this list. I'm like, this looks pretty rough. I mean, no, are you, are you serious, Jesus? No money at all? I, I, I'm not even supposed to bring a, a knapsack just with supplies, like, a, like not even like a Nutrigrain bar or something in case I get peckish? And then he says here, no sandals. He, I don't think he means no sandals at all. That, I mean, that's like a whole other level of pain, walking on the rough and rocky terrain. But what he is saying is don't bring an extra pair of sandals. I mean, put yourself in their sandals. That would have been a difficult pill to swallow, wouldn't it, for the nature of this task? I think Jesus gave this instruction to say, yes, but my provision will be sufficient for you. Now, he adds a phrase here, greet no one on the road. You may be wondering, well, that sounds kind of rude. I mean, literally, don't greet anyone on the road. I mean, that's kind of like, wow, okay, I'm going to ignore you no, that's not what Jesus is getting at. Uh, back in that day, uh, Eastern introductions and well wishes would often take a lot of time. This is yet another phrase that underscores the urgency of the task. And again, whenever we're confronted with a faith-building journey, our tendency is to look to our own resources. 
You remember in the feeding of the 5,000 that we even heard a sermon about recently, what was the disciples' response when Jesus called them to feed the 5,000? They, they looked to their own resources and they were coming up short and so they thought, we can't do this. Jesus knows this tendency is in the heart of all of his followers. So he makes the trip happen in such a way that would require faith in his ability to provide. Requiring faith to trust that God will supply everything needed for the task. He tells them to remain in the same house, making it a base of operations, eating and drinking what they provide as compensation for their journey. He tells them in verse 8 that whenever a town receives you, to eat what is set before you. He's highlighting that at every step of the way, they're not at any moment supposed to look to their own ability to provide. Whether it's the supplies, the money, or the food, at every turn, they were supposed to look to Jesus, the king, and ask him, please provide for us. This is hard, isn't it? I mean, even just not on mission trips or not in evangelism, isn't it hard to trust the Lord for provision? And yet when we do trust the Lord and his provision, he gives us a front row seat to showing, him, showing us powerful ways that he is able to work. And by doing that, he encourages our faith and shows us that he is the one who's doing the task ultimately, not us. Jesus knows, therefore, that it's actually for our good that we trust in him for his provision. Because if we looked to our own interests and we looked to our own abilities, who gets the glory? We do. But if we carry out the mission that God's given us in such a way that only he gets the glory, we can look back and say, surely God was in it. And when you see God provide that way, isn't that just an encouragement to your faith? When you can look at your life and see how God has shown up powerfully to provide for you in those ways, that equips you to have a greater and stronger faith and dependency on him as you carry out the task that he's entrusted. Hudson Taylor was a, uh, a great missionary to China and a man who was marked by this kind of dependence. And at one point, uh, he recounts the story of, of uh, he was asking a minister to borrow a book on China as he was preparing to go. And uh, as one of his biographers recounted the conversation, the minister asks him, why do you wish to read this book? Taylor says, I believe that God has called me to spend my life in missionary service to China. The minister said, and how do you propose to go there? Because remember, at that time, they didn't have planes or anything. It, it was going to be quite a task. Taylor said, I do not at all know, but it seems probable to me that I shall need to do as the 12 and the 72 did in Judea, to go without purse or money and to rely on him who has called me to supply, who has called me to supply all my need. The minister responded to him, probably surprisingly, Ah, my boy, as you grow older, you will get wiser than that. Such an idea would do very well in the days of Christ when he himself was on the earth, but not now. Taylor reflected on that scene decades later, saying this. He says, I have grown older since then, but not wiser. I am more convinced than ever that if we were to take the directions of our master and the assurances that he gave us to his first disciples more fully as our guide, we should find them to be just as suited to our time as those in which they were originally given. Now this is a man though who saw this. How could he speak with that level of confidence? It reminds me of another story. This is a quick one. He he was at a train station ready to go uh, here in the States. He came over. He was from um, London. But he came over to the States and he was doing some missionary talks at different churches. And he relied on the rail system to get him from place to place. He showed up one day with someone else who was traveling with him to the station. And it says uh, in one of the accounts that I read that the man who was with him was prompted in his spirit to ask Taylor, do you have money for this ticket? Basically, this other man who was with them said, I don't think Hudson Taylor has money for the train ticket to go on this trip. And so he was compelled to ask. And when he asked, he found, to his surprise, that Taylor said, you're right, I don't have any money for this ticket. Now, the train was about to go. He didn't even have money for the ticket. And the man asked him, why did you show up? How could you have known that God was going to provide a ticket for you because this man had spare money to buy a ticket? And Hudson Taylor responded this way. He said, 
I did not know, but my heavenly Father did. That's faith, to trust God to provide. And that's the type of faith that Jesus wanted to communicate to his disciples. But he also makes very plain that they're going to need to depend on the king's direction. Look again at Luke 10, 5 through 6. Whatever house you enter, first say, he says, peace be to this house. Now this greeting of peace is very similar to how we say hello and goodbye. It's, it was customary. But Jesus adds a little bit of a twist here. It seems that this offer of peace is actually a commodity to be given, not merely a, an empty well-wish And in fact, it is when we get to the message that's going to be proclaimed. But he says, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. What is Jesus getting at here with this instruction? Practical for them, yes, but what truth does it have for us? Well, I think some insight is given whenever we look at Matthew 10, 11, when Jesus equips the disciples to go out. And he says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. And stay there until you depart. Curious phrasing. People are worthy? What is the marker of somebody who receives this peace versus somebody who doesn't? Is there like a sign we should be looking for as we go through the apartment community or into downtown Durham or across the street at our neighbors that that would indicate who's going to be one of these people of peace? Jesus is saying, no, it's not like that. The way in which you discover Who is going to receive the message is by simple obedience to just take it to them, trusting that God will lead you in every step of the way. It's not our ingenuity or anything that we can see on the exterior of a person that would highlight for us who is deserving or undeserving of the gospel, even if we could use that phrasing. Instead, Jesus is teaching them here that as you go, what makes the mission successful is not our ability to assess or even our ability to be wise with the person who's standing in front of us, but rather it's God's ability to change their heart, to be receptive to the message. Jesus knows his sheep. Jesus knows every single one that will enter into his fold before judgment day happens, but he doesn't communicate who to his disciples. Instead, he has designed that we would affect his sovereign will through just obediently and indiscriminately taking it to everyone. A herald doesn't hang up their hat as a herald for temporary engagements. Instead, the herald is busy about the Lord's work, heralding at all times, trusting that God is the one who is ordering their steps. And similar to the provision, when we see people respond to faith, our faith will be encouraged to know that God is there doing the work. But now we come to the centerpiece of what it means to be a herald. They were supposed to obey these instructions, and I think Jesus gave those instructions to teach them these lessons. But Jesus also wants them to proclaim a saving message. Look again at Luke 10, 9. It says, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That is a powerful and loaded phrase, the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God mean? One commentator put it this way, the kingdom of God is God's kingship, his rule, and his sovereignty recognized and operative in the lives of his people, effecting their complete salvation. And it gets to a theme that really undergirds the nature of Jesus's ministry. Remember when we looked at Luke 4:43 briefly earlier, I'll read it to you again. Luke 4:43, Jesus says that I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. For this was my purpose. That phrase though is colored very powerfully for what comes before in Luke chapter 4 verses 18. Through 19, you may remember Jesus' uh, reading in the synagogue, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is so powerful. Jesus in those verses is quoting Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2. 
And, and we don't have time to flip there, but in that, in that section of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming kingdom and the future glory of Israel and God's people dwelling with him. But before that agent who comes to proclaim release from captivity, and before all of that glory is affected, chapter 59 of Isaiah talks about the requirement of judgment on sin because of the transgressions of the people. Isaiah 59.2 says plainly, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. So Jesus is coming to proclaim a kingdom, and he's going to affect that kingdom by proclaiming a message that looses captives and then frees them to have relationship with God. So that begs the question then, captives of whom? And freedom from what? We talked about this briefly earlier, but it's the power of Satan and the power of sin that Jesus is looking out at these lost and helpless sheep and is seeing as chains around their ankles that are binding them and holding them back from being able to have relationship with God. Because of their sin, their iniquities have separated them from God and have placed them into enemy territory. And as enemies under the wicked king of Satan doing Satan's will and being bound to sin because of the hardness of their heart and the effects of the curse of sin, they are unable to relate with God and they need someone to free them. And so Jesus here proclaims this saving message himself, but then he gives this saving message to his disciples and that saving message is that the kingdom of God, the ability to have relationship with him, to have your sins completely forgiven and the ability to enter into God's kingdom by faith, that time is now. And whose power is the one who's going to affect it? It's Jesus, the king. That's the beauty of the gospel. The king himself Instead of coming and issuing judgment to his wicked enemies who are completely bound by the chains of sin, instead of that, the king comes and he offers amnesty and grace. And now Jesus is saying, that's the message of the kingdom. When you yourselves who have been transformed by the king go out in his power, you are proclaiming the same message that has the power to free captives and to bring them into the kingdom of the beloved son, Colossians 1. And that power is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin is a bondage. It creates a separation between us and God, a chasm we cannot cross and it puts chains around our ankles that we cannot break. But Jesus has come to proclaim the time of the king's favor. The time is now. Again, underscoring that urgency, but also underscoring the beauty of what we as heralds have the privilege to proclaim. Let this sit on you for just a second. Do you realize that when you proclaim the gospel to someone, Jesus is saying here that the power of God is behind it to loose captives and to free them and to bring them into his fold. That's the message, brothers and sisters. That's what we get to do. That's what we get to do. Salvation has come, and by God's grace as his heralds, we will rejoice to see people enter into the fold. But lastly, Jesus is also aware and he communicates to his disciples that not everybody will actually respond favorably to this message. And in that case, the disciples are given a curious task. We proclaim a saving message, yes, but we also are called to communicate a dire warning to those who will not receive it. Luke 10, 10 through 12 says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Very quickly here, this imagery of wiping off the dust of your feet, very pious Jews, when they would travel outside of Israel, when they would come back in from that Gentile territory, as a sign of Getting rid of that uncleanness, they would clean their feet, ridding themselves of that dust to enter back into the holy land of Israel. 
It, it was a sign of judgment. It was a sign of being on the outside. Those Gentiles are on the outside. We don't want to be on the outside. Now, what's so powerful about this, though, is this is an image that Jesus is giving to his disciples in Jewish territory. He's saying that if there are Jews who hear the message of the cross, of the Messiah, and do not believe in that saving message as given by emissaries of the king, that they're as bad or as wicked as the Gentiles that they themselves dust their feet to separate from. It was a powerful sign. And so there's this judgment, this reality that the herald is supposed to communicate. And, and I think there's a few things about this instruction that we need to be mindful of as heralds in our day. One, it implies that the heralds do not change the message to make it more palatable to the hearers. Brothers and sisters, we have to be mindful that as we go into enemy territory with this message, people are going to rebuff it. They are going to shirk back. They're not going to receive it in some cases. But in that moment, we may be tempted to want to change the message or to maybe make it more uh, palatable for them in some way. But Jesus is communicating plainly the only thing to do in response to that is to proclaim the truth in love. But secondly, I also think this helps to correct perhaps the herald's flawed view of success. You see, Jesus, even with this simple command, highlights for us that faithfulness to take the message is what Jesus wants. When we go out, people may reject the message. The mark of success in the journey is not how many people come to faith. Instead, it's how many people we faithfully take the message to, trusting that God is the one who is building his kingdom, not us. And then thirdly, it serves as a visual reminder that one cannot be neutral. When we proclaim this message, people have to do something with the message of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be faithful as heralds, we have to make the dire cost of not accepting him plain. Those who are on the outside are on the outside under judgment. It's not a neutral territory. You belong to the enemy. Jesus wants us to be faithful to communicate that, trusting that the Spirit may use that warning to draw people to himself. So in closing, what are some lessons that we can take? We've sprinkled some along the way, but what are some lessons that we can take from this passage as heralds of the gospel today? Well, one, and, and, and simply put, see the sovereign intention of your present circumstance. Sometimes I think we think of evangelism as an activity or an event that we show up to. And there are opportunities that we have to go out together and to encourage one another and be trained. That's true. But pause for a moment and realize that if you've been called into Christ's kingdom, he has sovereignly and intentionally placed you exactly where you are now. Your workplace is not a mistake. The pool that you attend with your children is not a mistake. The city that we're in is not a mistake. God has appointed us as his 72 to go out into these communities. How can we be faithful? See the sovereign intention. And then secondly, pray for compassion for the lost that motivates urgency. I think this is one of the greatest needs for us as followers of Christ is constant, regular dependence on the Lord in prayer See the harvest by faith. See the coming judgment and be motivated to pray all the more. And I am willing to bet that as you pray for the lost, God will convict you to go to be a witness to them as well. And then let's obey this other command. Thirdly, to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. One practical way maybe to do this, my family, um, at 10.02 every day, which is twice a day if you stay up late enough, um, 10.02 every day, be reminded to pray. Lord, send out laborers into your harvest field. Luke 10, 2, lines of 10, 02 on the clock. Let's be people who are actively praying for God to compel people out into his harvest field. And then fourthly, go. Very plainly, Jesus says, now go your way. After praying, go exercise your muscles of dependence through evangelism. If you looked in your bulletin this morning, you'll see this summer card. It looks like this. The elders and the staff, we have intentionally designed all of the activities this summer to help all of us grow in this task of evangelism and mission. And so we want to invite you to be a part of it. Come with us. When you hear of an activity to go out and to canvas or to proclaim the gospel, don't shirk back in fear. Come, go out two by two. Let's be encouraged and grow in this together. That's what we've designed it to do. And then fifthly, build relationships intentionally. 
Jesus communicated to them to stay in these houses as a base. In some sense, it was to be a good uh, house guest. You know, you didn't want to jump from house to house. It was sort of a, a sign that they maybe weren't providing enough for you. It would have been a bad witness. But I also think it communicates a powerful truth about the nature of how the gospel spreads through relationship. If you build relationships intentionally where God has placed you, often those relationships become a base for communicating the gospel to others. So see the relationships that God has placed in front of you and build them intentionally. One powerful way to do this is by serving. Now, there may be some in the community, though, that don't need some of our services. Maybe they don't need ESL or a food pantry or a caring center, though those are excellent patterns to get involved in. Maybe they just need relationship and friendship. Perhaps there's a way you can leverage your interest to place yourself in the path of non-believers and build interest and friendship and relationship together that is seed for gospel proclamation, trusting that God will open the doors for you in that context. That's a powerful way to proclaim the truth as a herald, just to be faithful to build relationships with lost people. And then lastly, never assume that God isn't always working. John chapter 4, 37 through 38, Jesus says, For this saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. This is a humbling reminder for me as well. When we go out, when we're faithful in this task, we're just entering into the plan of God that he's already accomplishing, which one, gives us encouragement and gives us boldness, but it also gives us humility and a sense of trust because ultimately we're just entering into what God is already doing. So with that, don't make any assumptions. You may look at someone and think, oh, this person's way on the outside. You have no idea how God may have already been working in that person's heart to receive the gospel seed from you. So as we go forth, let's be heralds that are given an urgent commission Let's do the task of ministry that God's entrusted to us with constant dependence. Let's boldly proclaim the saving message that captives can be freed and sin can be atoned for through faith in Christ. And let's be faithful to that message, even if it means having hard conversations, not twisting the message, but proclaiming that dire warning, knowing all the while, as Tom Gears would put it, we're just in sales, not management. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we confess that we all have room to grow in this area of evangelism. Lord, I pray that as we look at the mission of the 72 and as we see the instructions that Jesus gave, that we ourselves will be motivated to see how we can build relationships for the sake of the gospel in our contexts. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be fearful. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't feel this as a sense of burden, but rather as a delight and as a joy, knowing that you have good for us in it as well, that as we go forth in power, we're going to see you working and our faith will be strengthened even as we hope to convey that faith to others. Lord, thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much for what you've given us by way of doctrine and the word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be communicators of it to the lost and dying world, seeing the world around us as sheep without a shepherd, being moved by compassion, and Lord, being moved to proclaim the only hope until Christ returns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.